HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is Liz Houck. Liz's first book, Homemade, came out in summer of 2021 to a rave review in the New York Times book review section. Not a minor feat for a first-time author. Liz's book tells the story of three years in which she showed up once a week without fail to make dinner and eat dinner with a group of boys living in a residential home in Boston. It's an incredibly moving story about what happens when you really show up. So I've asked Liz to read a chapter from Homemade. I'd be delighted. Thanks for having me, Louisa. This chapter is called Movable Feasts. Most of our dinners were pretty good, but the birthday dinners were the best. Each one was a tiny act of homemade grace on paper plates with frosting. Leon was the only one who had demonstrated actual interest on the first night when I introduced the birthday prong of my plan. He went to the staff office for a pen and piece of paper and wrote his name, birthday, and preferred cake and frosting flavor combination on the top line. But when Leon handed me the sheet back at the end of the night, I was surprised to see all the boys' names and dates and cakes were there. Sometime between the silences, each had made sure that his birthday had been registered. Wesley's 16th birthday was the first one we celebrated. It was in November, the seventh dinner I made at the house. Wesley chose calzones, which we hadn't made before. I brought dough from a restaurant I liked in the interest of taste. It was already delicious. And time. We only had an hour to cook. A shortcut I'd take for pizza in the years ahead. It was becoming clearer and clearer that cooking at the house was more of an assembly operation than a scratch kitchen, and I had to adapt. Frank poured each of the ingredients into a row of styrofoam bowls. Sautéed chicken in his signature cut, buffalo and barbecue sauces, 
pepperoni, meatballs, enough cheese to stuff a throw pillow, and red sauce. I cut large disks of already rolled out dough into halves and gave each boy one soft half moon to fill and fold. Everyone chose his combination carefully, snacking along the way. Cooking the calzones took over an hour because nobody knew where the second rack for the oven was, and we could only fit three at a time on the one we had. When we finally sat down to eat, Wesley gave a nod of approval. There was some groaning and exaggerated lip-smacking. Survey said the calzones were bomb, even though they took mad long to cook. Our bar for success was not tasting homemade, but restaurant-made. If a meal tasted like something they might buy in a restaurant, it passed. The calzones passed. Wesley's birthday cake was a copy of the strawberry shortcake we made the second night, like he requested. It was a round angel food cake split through the middle, filled with sugary sliced strawberries and whipped cream, with another layer of the soaked strawberries on top, and frosted with more whipped cream. Instead of writing happy birthday, I arranged strawberry slices into a W across the top and nestled the one and the six into the eaves of the W. Do we have to sing, somebody asked. Singing is lame, somebody added. I'm not singing, somebody said. Whoever wants to sing can sing, I said, carrying the cake from the kitchen on a glass platter I had brought for the occasion. Leon stood and switched off the lights and started the song in his loudest, most exaggerated falsetto. Happy birthday to you. Eyes closed and lips pursed for emphasis, he went for it. Happy birthday to you. By the time I reached Wesley and leaned down to place the cake in front of him, everyone had joined in, loud and off-key, almost shouting, Happy birthday, dear Wesley. Behind the chubby wax numbers, Wesley finger-conducted Keith Lockhart style, smiling all the while, his teeth bright in the light of the candles. He looked so young. Happy birthday to you, everyone sang shoutingly. That sound, the boom of a room full of teenage boys singing happy birthday to you, out of tune and at the top of their lungs, to a housemate who was something between a stranger and brother to them, was as close to joy as we ever got. When there was cake left over, Wesley asked if I was taking it with me. I said it was for him, so of course I was leaving it, right there in the fridge, on my glass plate. The next week, I checked the sink and cabinets, then casually asked about the platter. That ship broke, Wesley said. Does anybody know how that ship broke? I asked gently. Did you just swear? Leon asked. Did someone break my dish? I asked. You don't usually swear, James said, and Frank seconded. That shit doesn't usually just break, I said. I just wondered about the plate. The rest of the birthday cakes sat unceremoniously on an aluminum foil-wrapped community cookie sheet. Leon had thought through the details of his birthday dinner by the time Wesley's candles were lit, and possibly before that, though his birthday was not for another four months. In his careful and multiple mentions of his birthday, Leon reminded me of my dad, who had prized his birthday dinners. By the end of July, my dad would start drafting birthday menus and the list of possible gifts for his mid-September birthday. His gift list was usually the same. New books, black socks, a dress shirt with extra long sleeves. The menu was always the sacred trinity of meat, starch, and vegetable, but the flavors changed. Leon told me the first version of his birthday dinner menu on the night of Wesley's as we were washing the dishes. Over the course of the next four months, he tweaked it week to week. 
I changed my mind about my birthday dinner, he would begin with. At some point, Leon changed his cake to request ice cream sundaes. Actually, I like sundaes better than cake, so I want to have those. Didn't you say we could have whatever we want when it's our birthday? He asked. Sundays sound good, I told him. With candles, too. Just because it's not a cake doesn't mean I don't have candles. I'll get candles, I promised. The number ones, like you got Wes, one and nine, because I'm going to be 19. Leon was older than the other boys, and he was also the most specific about what he wanted, especially when it came to small things he thought he might actually get. A week after Wesley's birthday, Frank and I were in the kitchen prepping food when he brought up the subject of his own birthday dinner, which would be in February. You're planning to get me candles like Wes's? He asked. I I figured we'd get candles for all the birthdays, unless somebody doesn't want them. Do you not want candles? I asked. You think I'm going to cry or something? He asked. What? I laughed. I thought he was kidding. You think you're going to turn off the lights and people are going to sing and I'm going to cry because I never had a party like that or something? Frank asked. Oh, Frank, no, I said when I realized he wasn't joking. I wasn't thinking that at all. He was looking away from me, looking down. I shifted, trying to catch his eye. Unless you mean cry because the singing's so bad. I know, right, he said. I could see his cheek crack into a smile. Frank rarely smiled. When he did, he covered his mouth with a fist, as if he was holding an imaginary microphone in front of his lips, to cover the gap between his two front teeth. No candles, Frank, I said, shifting my tone back to soft, to serious. And we don't need to do a cake if you don't want to have a cake. We could do pie, or cookies, or sundaes. I want a cake, he said quickly. Okay, well, what kind of cake are you thinking? What kind is there? he asked. Lots of kinds, I said. A lot of people like vanilla or chocolate, and the vanilla can be white or yellow. Some people like carrot cake. Carrots in their cake? He scrunched his nose. Yeah, with walnuts in it. You usually make it with cream cheese frosting. It's good. It's kind of spicy, I said. I like it, actually. Sounds nasty, he said. I don't want that. Okay, no carrot cake. There's also red velvet. Red cake? He asked. Yeah, it tastes kind of like chocolate, but it's red. Like a really dark red, more than like Chicago Bulls red. And you usually put cream cheese frosting on that kind, too. Nobody says Chicago Bulls, he said. People just say Bulls. Okay, not Bulls red, I said. It's darker. It's more like chocolate. Do you want red velvet? No, red shit sounds nasty, too. No offense, he said. None taken, I said. Probably vanilla, he said, after a pause. Cake or icing, I asked. Both, he said. We can make it plain, or there's also a kind of vanilla that's called Funfetti. Sounds gay, he said. Frank, I said. I'd started campaigning to curb the use of gay as an insult in the house. Sorry, he shrugged. I'm just saying. Well, one of my friends really likes Funfetti cakes, I said. It's vanilla cake with rainbow chips mixed into it. So when you bake it, there's flecks of color in it. What's it taste like, he asked. The cake is sweet, and the flecks inside look like rainbow confetti, and I guess it tastes a little like confetti. As I described it, I thought despite myself that it didn't sound particularly heterosexual. I want that, he said. You do? I asked. Funfetti cake? Yeah, he said, but those little cakes so everybody gets their own, so nobody's touching mine. I nodded. Funfetti cupcakes. No candles. Sounds like a plan, Frank. Then... 
when I thought his apprehension about birthday dinners was assuaged with talk of cake and bulls and words like shit that we were used to hearing, he told me, I don't want candles because I wished for lots of stuff and I didn't get none of it. No candles, Frank, I said again, because I didn't know what else to say. Thank you. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. I see you in that kitchen with the boys. <sighs> Would you talk a little bit about how you got into that experience, a little bit about your father's story, and also where the boys were from, what the house was like? Set a little context for me. Sure. Where to start? I had suggested this cooking project as kind of a, a joke to my dad when my dad was still alive. He was trying to think about a way that he could get to know the kids at the house less of a kind of transactional way. He was the financial director. He handled paperwork at the house. The house was one of a number of residences, rather, run by a human services agency called Community Caring. There were eight residences for um, teenagers who were living in state care and also adults with intellectual disabilities who were living in a group home setting. How did the kids get to the house? Through the state care system. There's no wrong age for foster care. You know, my, my colleagues who work with people in foster care would kind of adamantly say that people are working within the foster movement to kind of break down that idea that there are kids who kind of, you, you don't age out of foster care. The boys that I worked with at the house were kids who are in state care, who had a complicated background. So some of them had been removed from their biological families. This was kind of a step down from detention facilities. Others had medical or emotional needs that they needed this sort of in-between placement. My dad was a social worker by training. Jerry Wright is the director of community care and founder of community care. My dad was his kind of co-director in that project. They started this agency. Jerry has essentially this radical vision of, you know, keeping people out of institutions and, and living in community and with each other. It started as one home or two homes in 1969 and evolved over time. The end of my book is in 2009. Essentially for those years, they provided care to teenagers and vulnerable adults in the residential home setting. After graduating from Boston College in 2000 and moved home to kind of figure out what I really wanted to be when I grew up and was working at a hospital, my dad and I would make dinner at night. My mom was often at the nursing home where my grandmother, where my mom's mother was. She wouldn't eat unless somebody was sitting across from her. So my mom would go at dinner time to sit with her mom. This often left me and my dad or sometimes me and my dad and my sister. And we would kind of make dinner and talk through our days. And my dad was talking about how he missed having the kind of casual interaction with kids that he had had during his early days as a direct caregiver. And I kind of joked like, oh, you should do a cooking class uh, because he loved cooking shows. He would watch them from credits to credits. He said that he thought it was a neat idea and that we could be a team like Jacques Pepin and Claudia. Yeah. I say in the book, I, he had me at team, you know, and I had him at food. We <laughs> kind of clicked glasses of Sam Adams, you know, to kind of toast our great idea. He got sick. He got mesothelioma, which is a, a pretty fierce kind of cancer, um, an aggressive kind of cancer. So everything, really everything but survival was backburnered. He died nine months after that. Sometime after he died, I had dinner with his business partner and said that 
my dad and I had had this idea, and would he ever let me try it? And Jerry kind of thanked me, but no thanked me. He was like, that's not really the kind of programs we have at the house. And I know he was thinking that the population of kids who were at the house was different than the population of kids who I taught at Boston Latin, which is where I was working as a teacher by then. I swear I won't disappoint them, you know, when I rattled off my experiences volunteering and working with teenagers and adults and, you know, in a prison and a homeless shelter. He kind of gave me the kind of you know, again, kind of the the, the thanks, but no thanks. Um, I'll let you know if anything changes. And then not too long after that, I got a voicemail message from Jerry. Apparently, one of the kids at the house had, in an angry effort to defrost a hamburger with a steak knife, had cut his hand open and required a number of stitches. So Jerry kind of narrated that story and said, um, so apparently they're may be a need for a cooking program at the house. If you are still interested in giving it a go, why don't you show up next week to meet the young people and we'll just see what happens. And then, you know, the the message kind of dropped off. And I showed up the next week. And this book is essentially the, the story of what happens. When we come back, We'll ask Liz to tell us more about how she came to write the book Homemade. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere in the United States. But that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach Cave Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmiusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. And we are back with Liz Hoke. So you would go there one night every week. And at first, the boys were very, very skeptical. But you would go, you would lug these bags of groceries from your car, and you would cook with these boys. And what did you learn about why sitting around a table and being in the kitchen is so powerful? I knew going into it that I would have certainly been professionally more equipped to run a tutoring program or some sort of homework help thing. I certainly was an adequate cook, but was not any sort of fancy cook. But I knew from having worked with teenagers that when there's food, people show up. And I knew from having lived with roommates and having lived in my family that when there's food, there's a kind of intimacy that fills in silences. It stops being about kind of what to say and what not to say and starts being about the kind of food and the sharing and the the conversation is incidental and comes next. So the, the food kind of provides the structure for the interaction. 
In the beginning, the boys were skeptical is a good word. Most of them, you know, there was one kid, Leon, who's in the chapter that I read, who he told me from the beginning he would show up and he was interested. He's like, I I don't know about the rest of the people. I can do it. With that, I figured if one kid showed up, then maybe there would be more. And if we did it one time, if we had one dinner, I had no idea how long it would last. The house parent who was there on the first night was sure that it would maybe not even happen the first for one dinner. The first meeting, I kind of went with brownies and went to outline my plan. And the house parent leaned in before I was leaving and was like, this isn't really how we do things here with a table and everything. And so I was like, okay. And I kind of shrugged and said, I, you know, we'll just, we'll just see what happens. So there was never a, not there was never a master plan. I mean, the master plan was to bring food and see what happens, right? With the idea that like when there's food, good things happen, but no kind of agenda or timeline. And I had the kids pick the menu so that they were invested in what we were eating and that we were kind of making and eating what they wanted to learn how to kind of make and eat. So they were teenagers between 15 and 20. There were a couple of kids who were over 18 who had intense medical issues that meant that they kind of qualified for and were in the care of the state for longer than the other kids. The other kids, some of them knew that they were aging out at 18. They would be in their own kitchens. I wanted them to learn how to make the things that they wanted to make to be able to nourish themselves when they would be alone. I certainly didn't go into it thinking, nobody here knows how to cook and I'm going to give them this information. Everybody knows what they like to eat. And most people have some idea of how to prepare some of what they like to eat. It was more of a, a practice kitchen than a teaching kitchen. And I hoped that it would also be a kind of sharing kitchen, right? So that if people knew how to make what they like to make, that then by suggesting their thing, they'd be kind of introducing each other to kind of flavors and showing that kind of care that is inherent when you cook for people. One of the things that I loved reading was how there were certain boys who essentially developed their specialties. This one cuts chicken that way, and that one makes it this way, and they all had their little corner that was theirs that they did and that no one else could do. And as we travel with them over time, and the, the core group of boys are there through most of the book, it's like peeling the onion. Each chapter we get to know one of them a little bit better or something a little bit deeper about the other one in the context. I found it incredibly moving. How did you end up being able to write this book? Yeah, so the timeline, so the house disbands in 2009. It's closed. I never intended it to be a book. I didn't approach it as a journalist or a, you know, social scientist. I wasn't taking notes or studying the kids, you know, like an anthropologist. Were you taking notes along the way or how did you recall all of this? Well, a couple of things. I saved the receipts, right? So I was paying and that was kind of one of my ways of tracking was saving the receipts. Um, Another... um, from the groceries. From the groceries, yeah, the receipts from the groceries. My memory, I think my, my memory, I store memories in conversation. So I, I think one of the things that comes through, or I hope it comes through in the book, is that part of my methodology is conversation, is dialogue. That is how I remember, is through dialogue, is through conversations. Probably earliest drafts of this story were, you know, sent as like emails and text messages to friends about what was happening with this project. It was easier to talk about this cooking thing when 
when people are asking how I was doing, you know, I would talk about school or I would talk about the cooking program as opposed to really talking about grief or talking about missing my dad or still not really feeling like I knew what I wanted to do professionally. Those conversations were the earliest chapters were sent out in informal communications. In 2009, when the place closed, I say this, you know, toward the end of the book, the cooking program went on and what was maybe going to be one dinner ended up being almost three years of dinners. Everything was changing. The the configuration of kids in the house was changing. The restaurant across the street was changing. The thing that wasn't changing was the kind of funeral home directly across the street from the house that looked exactly the same from when I was a kid showing up at the house to kind of meet my dad and wait for a ride home. When the place closed, when the, the agency closed, I was trying to calculate how many kids I had met. Some of them I only knew for two weeks. Jerry was like, oh, I couldn't say. He's like, your father could almost certainly say. And I was like, I I know that's kind of what I was thinking. We were sitting at this restaurant and it was quite poignant and the, the lights at the house were off. And it was kind of unbelievable to me to think that it was over when he looked at me and he said, you have to tell the story about what you did here so that people will know that something happened here. At first, it was kind of like, oh, the thing, the slice of life that I know of that place was so tiny. Two hours a week for three years is a, a fraction of the work that they did for almost 40 years, 24 hours a day, quite literally. He kind of insisted that it was part of the story, and it seemed that was a thing that I could do. I was not in a position to start my own nonprofit or do some sort of big thing, but I could write this story and see what happens with this story. And that, that's what I yeah. do. Yeah, it's, it's just beautiful. It's almost about the concept of food more than it is the actual food, which is one of the things that I loved about it. It isn't that you were making, as you put it, wasn't like you were making fancy stuff. You were making calzones and pizzas and stir-fried chicken, all good things. There's nothing wrong with any of that food. But it wasn't really about the food. It was about the moment and being there as a constant and a warm constant in in those kids' lives, the ones who wanted to accept it. How do you think they saw you? I was like the teacher. I would listen when new kids would come in or people's cousins or friends would come in to like how they would explain me. One of the kids came in and was like, oh, who's the chick in the kitchen? And one of the other kids was like, what chick? And then one of the other kids said, she's not a chick. He's talking about Liz. And the kid who was like, what chicks in the kitchen was like, oh, yeah, she's not a chick. It didn't make sense to some of them how I wasn't staff, why I wasn't being paid, why I would be there anyway. I was kind of talking about community service as an idea of volunteering. Well, I'm a volunteer. What's volunteer? Well, it's kind of, you know, community service. And so one of them was like, oh, this is instead of being locked up, that this is your alternative thing. And I was like, well, I can see how you would think that that is community service, but this is not. I was like, dude, this is, this is not where they would send someone who does something wrong. It was to work with you. We sat down every week. That is the story. The first night I backtracked and said, if people want to take their plates and eat in the TV room or eat wherever you want, that's fine. And Leon, the the kid who I call Leon, I have changed all the boys' names to protect their privacy. He said, it's not a buffet. And I kind of took the plates and was holding them out. Like, if people want to serve themselves and take their food where they want, you can do that. And he took the plates from me. Like, that's not what you said. You didn't say that we were going to eat like a buffet. You said we were going to eat like a family. And I had said family style the first day. And I was like, okay, well, we can eat at the table. You and me can eat at the table. And anybody who wants to eat at the table can eat at the table. And anybody who doesn't, you know, can eat someplace else. That was part of the thing was every week. In fact, I would say... 
often it was not all of the kids who would help in the kitchen, with almost without exception, everybody who was in the house would sit down with us and eat. So that was a decision. There was kind of some question by the kids who consistently helped in the kitchen about who should be able to eat with us, that do you have to cook in order to be able to eat? I brought plenty of food, which certainly was part of the grammar of my own kind of food practice at home, where there was always plenty and enough if somebody just kind of showed up. I said, there's plenty, you know, and that was so that there was enough food for everybody who helped to eat. So the kids who were cooking in the kitchen didn't feel like they were sacrificing any of the food to people who weren't helping. I thought that was an important part of what I was trying to do in that space was to extend the table, to sit down and have unconditional dinner, that you didn't have to work for it in kind of quotation marks to put it in other terms. So this was for most of them, their only sort of communal family dinner in the week. I think that's probably true. So as we're heading into the holiday season of the year, I'm very moved by this image. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how all of this experience has changed your understanding of what it means to break bread with people. To me, the table is a kind of sacred space. I think that the kind of community that we make and reinforce when we eat with people, when we kind of share our food with people, is powerful. At Thanksgiving, at the holidays, with our blood families and with our chosen families, maybe even more than with the people we're obligated to be with or be attached to, that we choose who's at our tables. And we choose, you know, that decision to kind of share what you have is a powerful thing. At Thanksgiving, anytime we do that, it's an occasion in the space that we make for each other and share what we have. That's a gift whenever it happens, whenever we make it happen, when we're invited to the table or we invite others to our table. Well, I've loved talking to you, and I think gift is the right way to think about it because I was struck in reading it how your making dinner for them and with them was a gift you were bestowing to them and honoring the memory of your father. But it was also a gift to you to get to know them, to be there, to essentially go down this road with a bunch of kids that you probably would never have access to. What's next for you? I am finishing my doctoral studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in history and educational policy studies. So that's my next project. And you're right in the middle of those exams right now. I am in the middle of those exams as as we speak. And another book? Yes. Well, what will the next book be? I think the next book will probably be my my dissertation book, which will be a history book about mother's activism in Boston between 1953 and 2003, essentially telling the story of segregation, desegregation, and resegregation in schools through the lives of two women in Boston, two mother activists. So this is a book about food but it's really a book about social activism as well. And showing up for each other yeah, sh- in, in terms of gift. I think that, you know, that was the reciprocal thing, right? When, you know, when we show up to the table or or to, you know, kind of wherever we show up. And I think as we emerge from this pandemic, I mean, these holidays that we're heading into take on this kind of new significance, right? We're seeing people that we, you know, have been apart from. And would that we also kind of extend our tables to our 
you know, to, to our neighbors or to maybe even to people who we wouldn't have considered our neighbors before now, recognizing the importance of sharing and showing up for each other. Being there together. I love it. Thank you so much, Liz. The book is Homemade. We'll put a link to it on our website. I urge you to read it. It's incredibly moving. And I won't, my children accuse me of being a spoiler, but I'm not going to spoil the end, but it's incredibly profound. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you, Louisa, for having me. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you. Liz, I just wish you many, many more books, and I hope that everybody gets a chance to read this book. I think it changed my life. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 